2: Slate Money is sponsored by Citrix GoToMeeting. When meetings matter, millions choose GoToMeeting. Hold a meeting with anyone from the convenience of your computer, smartphone, or tablet, and get a free 30-day trial by visiting GoToMeeting.com and clicking the Try It Free button.
1: Hello, and welcome to the shiny new things edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion, and I'm joined, as always, by Kathy O'Neill, the data scientist and blogger at mathbabe.org. Hi, Felix. And Slate's Moneybox columnist, Jordan Weissman. Hello, Felix. Hello, Kathy and Jordan. But I'm going to put you two to one side, because we have... The one and only Andy Bowers. You hear Andy Bowers' name every single time you listen to this podcast, if you listen all the way to the end, because I say at the end of the show, and the executive producer of all of Slate's podcasts is Andy Bowers, except for now he's got an even bigger job. We're going to talk to him about that, as well as we're going to talk about students at for-profit colleges going on debt strike and nimbies in Mountain View. But Andy is here. So I want to start with you. Tell us a little bit about yourself, because this is something I've just learned and I didn't realize. You are a long-standing radio person. You're saying I'm old, Felix. Uh, Well, you are an old as well. I like being around Andy, because he's even (laughs) older than I am.
3: Actually, you're also old, I can't even differentiate. I'm I'm like age-blind.
1: So Andy started in like the 18th century sometime at Mm -hmm. NPR. (laughs) And then
2: and then you invented this thing called podcasting. Oh, I didn't invent that. I was a reporter at NPR for many years, and I loved every minute of it. But then about 12 years ago came an opportunity to join Slate. Slate was doing a co-production with NPR of a show called Day to Day, a midday news magazine few years later, podcasting came along. We thought we'd try it. We had some studios set up for this NPR venture anyway. And so how did it start? What was the first Slate podcast? The first Slate podcast was me reading a Slate article out loud.
3: We do that for Slate Plus now sometimes.
2: Yes, we do. Like, there's
3: still like a little vestige of that. We've mm-hmm. kept it.
2: Bloomberg View does
1: that. Mm-hmm. They, they have, I that David Shipley, who reads the editorials out loud so that Mike Bloomberg can listen to them while he's on his treadmill in the morning.
3: <laughs> I, I, I have no doubt that's the actual reasoning, too, that like it's specifically for Mike Bloomberg. He can afford that.
1: So after moving from radio to podcasting, because there were more empires yet to conquer, you have now become, I hate to use this word, a platform. <laughs>
2: <laughs> What's it like to be a platform? Well, this one's very high. It's the 10 meter <laughs> platform. But no, what we did was, so the platform that we have launched is something called Panoply. It is a place where we have asked, invited other media organizations to join us in what we think is a whole that will be bigger than the sum of the parts.
0: So is it, is it like competing with iTunes?
2: No, not at all. iTunes is a place where you go to get podcasts, but they don't produce podcasts. We are producing podcasts uh, in partnership with The New York Times Magazine, New York Magazine, Inc., Real Simple, Food 52, um, a number of other organizations, and more soon, I hope. We are in talks with a number of other ones. So and people
0: can't just say, hey, I have a podcast. I'm going to add it to Panoply.
2: That's right. It is a relatively closed platform. And we're starting with organizations like ourselves. Because I have now 12 years of experience taking people who write and putting them on the air, this is something we know how to do. So what do you have in your network? We need to give these
1: things a, a bit of a kick up the ass on their way out the door, right? You yes. Know, get, get some <laughs> momentum for
2: them.
0: By the way, in the door...
1: In the
2: door, in the right? door. Yes, yeah. We're way, not we're not expelling them already. It's been one week. Yeah. Well, the New York Times Magazine just relaunched last Sunday, and as part of that, they've revamped the Ethicist column to make it the Ethicists now, and it's the Ethicists podcast,
1: and it features my former colleague Jack Schaefer, and your former colleague. That's at right, Slate. He's worked for
2: everyone, has Jack, at some point.
0: <laughs> I love that. That's a great idea. I love the Ethicists.
2: Yeah. So what they're doing is the podcast is the primary vehicle. They're having these discussions, debates. It's uh, it's Jack Schaefer, Amy Bloom, and Kenji Yoshino, and they're debating them, and then they're taking the podcast and cutting it down into an edited transcript in the magazine. So it's podcast first, which I don't think has ever been done quite like that before. So there's that. Um, Gretchen Rubin, who's an author about happiness, has a great podcast with her sister with advice on how to get happier um ink magazine has a terrific also my ex-boss jim ledbetter Jim Ledbetter, who also used to work here uh, and
1: wow. he's on the podcast he's the host of it he's the host of the, well i've again a man who's worked for everyone
2: at some point but i feel like he's never done a podcast before he did actually oh jim used to run the big money for slate and we did a podcast for about a year jim really has done everything yeah, yeah.
1: many times yes So you guys should all listen to all of these. You will have no time to actually work or live. You will spend your entire (laughs) life glued to your phone listening to podcasts. But tell me, because this is sleep money, I need to ask you about this. Explain
2: the finances of this. How is the whole greater than the sum of the parts?
0: The well, business model. Basically. The business model.
2: Yeah. Well, podcast advertising has been very interesting for a while now. It gets some of the highest ad rates of any kind of advertising out there. It actually, the ad rates it gets per listener are higher than Super Bowl ad rates. Of course, mm-hmm. I wish we had Super Bowl like numbers, but we don't. <laughs> but they they are very high, and it's because you know the kind of advertising that you do on this show and we do on the other shows is is very personal and it's um, it, it, it's. People are engaged with it. They they actually listen to it. And especially on m- mobile devices, you know about mobile advertising. It's terrible. It's those little things at the bottom of the screen that you can just totally ignore. It's much better to have voices in your head. Yes. yes.
0: Well, it's also not, it's not that we do it so well, which we do, Felix especially. Um, but it's the, the, the self-selection of the podcast audience, right? They're, That's right. They went to the, some trouble to listen to this podcast.
1: It's precisely yeah. because it's so difficult to subscribe. To podcast that make the advertisements <laughs> yeah. oh, no, so valuable. Every
3: time you find yourself unable to download our podcast on Apple, we—that's actually part of the plan. We, <laughs> we really want you to be committed. We don't want any like fly-by-night listeners.
2: Yeah. So, so podcast advertising, especially since serial, the serial phenomenon, more and more advertisers are interested. More and more um, potential podcasters are interested in getting into it. There is a real business here. We're going to explore the limits of how big it can get. Um, but we think that there are a lot more potential listeners out there who are going to now try to get over those technological hurdles that you mentioned. So, but,
1: OK, so I'm still struggling with my initial question, which is why is having 40 podcasts under one roof better than having 40 podcasts? Where, where are the economies of scale? here? Ah,
2: the, the economies of scale are, first of all, we have the studio that you're sitting in. We have another studio here in New York. We have one in D.C., some in L.A. And we can – so if you're a news organization that doesn't currently podcast, you don't have to build studios. You don't have to hire producers. We can do that for you. So we have capital. Yes, we have capital. We have capital, And in we particular,
0: it's going to be harder to schedule the studio time in the future.
2: <laughs> don't, yours is already reserved, Woo-hoo! Kathy. Don't worry yes. about it. This okay. time is blocked out. Okay. So we can help with that. We also, selling podcast advertising is a unique specialty. It's not the same as selling radio ads. It's not the same as selling banner ads on websites. So most organizations don't know how to do that yet. We can help with that. Uh, the third thing is cross-promotion because you're going to be hearing on these shows promos for other shows that we think people would like if they like this show, like the Inc. podcast, for instance. If you like business-related things, you might like that show as well. So we're hoping that each organization will bring in its own audience, and then that audience will jump in the pool, so to speak, from our platform and and sample what there is.
0: So a quick question. Is it like a combination of subscription and advertisement? Is there like a premium subscription to avoid advertisement?
1: Yeah, does Slate Plus 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 subscribers get to
2: listen to all of these other podcasts without ads as well no slate is one partner in panoply so slate is doing its thing slate plus will continue just as it is now with the slate podcasts in there in their ad free and longer forms But Panoply shows there is no subscription model for that. There may be at some point. Slay Plus has been working really well, and the people who are listening to the podcast through it are super engaged. They write us all the time, and they really enjoy the content. So do I. I love the extra content that we're hearing there.
0: I've become friends with a couple of them.
2: Have you? Yeah, with the Slate Plus listeners? Yeah, they're
0: they're just so into it.
2: Yeah, yeah. they are.
0: They feel like they are already my friend because they listen. Hey, hello, friends.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. We we may extend that model to Panoply at some point, but not not at first. And my my final question, Andy, is:
1: Are you trying to put Alex Bloomberg out of business? <laughs> is, is is this your way? Because he has a successful podcast, and you just got so jealous. You're like, I, I'm going to
2: crush you. Yeah. That's my entire motivation, Felix. (laughs) (laughs) Who are you talking about?
0: uh, Who is that?
2: He's talking about the guy who does startup. He came from This American Life and Planet Money. He's he's been chronicling the start of his business uh, called Gimlet. Which is another podcasting empire. Well, they only have two shows at the moment, so I wouldn't yet call it an empire, but it has empire potential. They're puny. No, no, no. I'm not saying that at all. They they are starting new shows, but I, I know Alex, I know his partner, Matt Lieber. Matt used to produce the Culture Gab Fest, as a matter of fact. They're fantastic. I love their shows. The only thing that I don't like about startup is because I've been also starting up a podcast business. It makes me incredibly anxious to listen to it because oh, I'm, sure. I'm going through exactly the same things, but I love it. In fact, I talked to Matt yesterday about this very question. People have been asking me, are you competing with them? And I say no, because right now we need more people to listen to podcasts. All of us do. So every listener that startup brings into podcasting is a potential listener for us. Every listener that we bring in is a potential listener for them. It is a rising tide and it's raising all the boats. And And now one of the big themes of startup, of course,
1: is the difficulties of raising money to invest in this thing. For you, all you needed to do was wander along to Don Graham's office and he wrote your check, right?
2: If I were to answer, I would use the answer from from the original House of Cards, which is, you might very well think so. I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> well,
1: you got to know. Felix has well,
2: a no comment. I, I, I feel like
1: the questions which are not answered are always the most interesting questions. Mm. So Andy, since you're here... And since we're not hearing your voice as much as we used to on the Slate podcast, mm. will you do us the favor of telling
2: us about Citrix GoToMeeting? I would be happy to, Felix. Citrix GoToMeeting is a service that you can use to hold virtual meetings. And this is very relevant to me because I'm based in Los Angeles and everyone else I work with is in New York or Washington. And we have used GoToMeeting to Uh, have video conferencing with each other to share screens. It's an amazing service. It really works well. And with bad weather and people homesick, this may be happening to you right now. Unless you use Citrix GoToMeeting to meet with clients and coworkers online because you need to be able to collaborate and get work done, even if your team is stuck at home or stuck in Los Angeles with that terrible 72 and sunny degree weather. I'm getting mean stares from around the room. Yes, you are. But Citrix GoToMeeting helps you work smarter because anyone can join from any computer, tablet, or smartphone. You can turn on your webcam to read the room with HD video conferencing. Reading the room is important because I'm getting these glares from you, Felix, and I wouldn't (laughs) see that if I were not on GoToMeeting. You can try GoToMeeting now free for 30 days. Go to gotomeeting.com. And click the Try It Free button. That's meeting.com. Try it free. All right, Andy. Thank, thank you, Andy. You. Uh, thanks. My pleasure.
1: So listen to all of the Panoply programs on Stitcher, SoundCloud, all of the major podcast apps, and go to itunes.com slash panoply. That's where they all are. Now, Jordan Weissman, what is going on in Mountain View? Oh, what isn't going on in Mountain View? So this week, Google is getting ready to
3: submit its plans for a brand new, giant, beautiful headquarters in Mountain View.
1: Which is rare by Silicon Valley standards, because one of the things which people who haven't been to Silicon Valley fail to realize is that all of these huge, iconic companies generally work out of the most boring office parks you can possibly imagine. Yeah,
3: it's highway and office parks and not particularly gorgeous ones. It's not all like spaceships like Apple's planned and things along those lines. But point being, uh, they're submitting their new plans to the city of Mountain View. And this is bringing some tensions in the town to kind of the fore. They've been bubbling up for a long time because Google is this massive, massive company. It's roughly 20,000 employees locally. At the same time, the entire town of Mountain View is about 80,000 people. And so the, Google's existence and its growth has been putting all this pressure on local resources. It's been creating massive traffic jams. And the fact that people are moving there is driving up housing prices and, as a result, property taxes. But at the same time, bringing in lots of revenue to the local economy, And, of course, this leads to lots of conflict amongst the locals, some of whom don't want anything to change. Uh, As one person told the New York Times, uh, our problem is we have too many good jobs in Mountain View.
0: So how is this different from, like, gentrification in general?
1: Well, I think it's – there are lots of differences. It's the old millionaires against the new millionaires (laughs) rather than the millionaires against the poor I mean, is this like – should we
0: just be like, oh, good, they're getting a taste of what gentrification feels like to the rest of people?
3: I think there's a little bit of that, but it's not – In this case, you have two very powerful constituencies, which is the old millionaires who have traditionally run the politics of this town and then the new millionaires who are trying to bargain their way in. And what Google wants to do is more development. They want to build new housing, for instance, in one of the kind of emptier corners of Mountain View. Um, and there are some people who are very pro this because they think
1: they need to accommodate this company and some people who are very against it. Um, Wait, hang on Does Google want to build new housing? Is it building new housing because it's being asked to build new housing if it's also no, going go- to be building new offices? No, Google wants to build new housing. They want... Uh, they they why would Google, which is a technology company, want to get into the housing? Well, business? I don't. Know, I don't think they specific, but they want to.
0: I, I, I can answer that. Yeah. Why does Columbia University want to yeah. build more housing and schools? Because it attracts the best people. Like people do not want to move there if they can't have a find a nice place to live.
1: So I mean, I, what I what? To, and I I'm going to come back to you, Kathy, and say that this is really not a gentrification thing. This is an older phenomenon, which is simply about density. Yeah. that You have people in very low-density suburbs, which is what Mountain View is. They move to the suburbs because they like that kind of low-density lifestyle. And then they see which way the wind is blowing, and the wind is clearly blowing towards higher-density living. And they don't like that, even though higher density is nearly always a good thing. Yeah, so this is
3: nimbyism, right? It's not in my backyard. What what is nimbyism? It's not in my backyard. The idea is that, you know... It's okay if you develop somewhere, but I don't want you developing in my town. Oh, I don't want you developing down the block from me. If it's in a major city, it's, if it's in San Francisco, it's, oh, well, we want there to be more housing, but I just don't want a giant skyscraper in the middle of you know, my bucolic little neighborhood. Right. And the problem with nimbyism is that, on the one hand, we all like local control of where we live. We like to have a say in our, in our communities. The problem is when every little local community has a say, that basically a veto over development, there's no development. And this is a problem that you've seen throughout Silicon Valley in these rising housing prices. You've lots and lots of newly wealthy workers coming in and driving up the cost of housing because there's no new housing being built. In San Francisco, you see these protests where there, you know, people are jumping on the Google bus and vomiting on the window. Um, that actually happened. What? Uh, that that was at, yeah, that was one of the protests. People have, they throw eggs, they throw stuff. One person actually vomited on top like of the
1: Google bus. On demand.
0: <laughs> I'm sorry. And this is
1: and just to be yeah. clear about this, These are people in San Francisco complaining about the number of Google employees. San Francisco is nowhere near Mountain View, and these these are people who are living in San Francisco and commuting all the way to Mountain View. Google understands all of the worries about traffic, and so they are putting lots of people into a single bus rather than asking everyone to drive their own cars. The protesters in San Francisco are not jumping onto individual Google employees' cars, which cause much more congestion and emissions and all the rest of it. (laughs) None of this stuff really makes sense. But but basically, the solution to all of these problems is more density, because then you can fit everyone in the same
3: place. I'm going to say something that's not incredibly popular with wonks. who Wonks like high density, policy types, really like the idea of just build, build, build. I do sort of understand the impulse to fight against that, because what you kind of end up with, to some degree... When that actually happens, right, when you actually just let the developers take over, you get neighborhoods that look like Murray Hill in New York. You get Condo Canyon on Second Avenue, just like high rise after high rise after high rise. And usually they're not particularly attractive because- Like it's not, the Trump Towers. Yeah, yeah, exactly, on the far west side of mm-hmm. New York because architectural you know, aesthetics are not the thing that's front of mind for them. And so it can sort of leave a, a scar on the community in some ways. On the other hand, if you're worried about affordable housing, outside of trying to tinker with what developers have to build and percentage of affordable units versus luxury units and things that never really seem to work long term, there's no really better way to deal with it than letting development happen. And so there is this tension.
1: And especially you have this tension in Northern California where, you know, you get ultra NIMBYs. You know, there's there's this thing (laughs) called NIMBYs, which is not in my backyard. And then you have bananas. A banana. A banana.
0: You just say it like that, banana. A banana. A, can I say banana?
1: You can say banana. Like banana. banana. So a banana. You know what a NIMBY is, but you don't know what a banana is. I don't know. A banana is build absolutely nothing anywhere near anything, which wow. is more or less what you get in certainly bits of Marin. And up towards Napa and places like that, you know, you could try and build a garden shed and you'll have protests outside your house.
0: Okay. So San Francisco, the stories you hear about the protests in San Francisco are a very different flavor from what we're hearing about Mountain View, right? You guys described the old millionaires versus new millionaires. Presumably they could pick up, sell their more popular houses and move to a new low density place. You hear in San Francisco, by contrast, about developers sort of kicking out old ladies who were on, you know, subsidized housing in order to build new stuff for Google engineers. I mean, it's a different scale. And I would say, by the way, Jordan, that the bad effects of things like gentrification are not ugly buildings so much as these populations that have oh, been kicked out. Well,
3: I'm not talking about just gentrification, but yeah. I just mean un- uncontrolled development. Uncontrolled so when, development, when, yes. When you, that, you do get these, again, just sort of stretches of...
1: But as I was saying in the in the beginning... If you want yeah. stretches of soulless architecture, just go to Mountain View right now. <laughs> That's true. That's true. You, yeah, it's not, uh, it, it's not, really it can't boring. be much worse. Yeah. It is so the... unbelievably boring. Yeah, this
3: isn't like Frank Lloyd Wright houses that are about to be raised uh, to build a new office park. But you're right that there are differences. But I'm just saying in terms of what's happening in San Francisco with low-income communities versus what's happening in Place Mountain View, I'm saying it does stem from a somewhat similar core problem, which is the inability to develop and the inability to make space for everybody. And so there are different symptoms, but I th- the symptoms express themselves differently depending on the specific town or city. But in some senses, we're talking about the same disease. Yeah, I mean,
0: I I do have some sympathy for the mountain viewers. And I understand that the numbers are such, tell me if I'm wrong. I mean, you said some numbers at the beginning, but the numbers are such that they're worried that they're like, their votes, the sort of the old school, the old guard, mountain viewers, their votes will be outnumbered by the Google votes pretty soon if things keep going.
3: Yeah, there is a comment along the lines of, I think, like, the last election had 12,000 voters, so if 5,000 Google employees moved into new housing uh, near the Googleplex and decided to vote in local elections, they'd basically have an unbeatable block. Right, um, and
0: that's gross. And
1: But, you know, there's absolutely no reason to believe that Google employees will all vote the same way. This is one of the things about local politics. You know, it's idiosyncratic and along a million different axes, and I can't imagine why... You know, these new Google employees are going to want anything different from the people who are already in Mountain you know, View. Like the special you lanes
0: for the Google buses? <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, I will
3: say I don't think a place like Mountain View really has a better answer at this point unless they want to deal with gridlock forever and traffic jams. I mean, they have to develop more and find ways to – they've made their bargain. They They have this giant company there. They're taking the tax dollars. It's not moving. They now need to adjust.
0: Okay, important question. Is there actually a mountain in Mountain View? And can, do you have a view of it if you're there? Uh,
1: so there is no mountain in Mountain View because you can't have a view oh, of a mountain oh, sure. if, if you're, okay, if you're on the mountain. Fair. <laughs> but there are the hills, you know, okay. between Mountain View and the Pacific Ocean. And you can see those. Okay, great. Okay. So I think that's enough nimbyism for one day. Kathy. Yeah. Let's start getting political here. With... Okay. Good can't pay, won't pay. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Woo. Um, some debt is immoral. That yeah, I'll start there. If the technical
1: a. term is odious some debt. This debt is a thing is which exists. Odious. To. That is a and if mission you're looking
0: statement. for the most extreme kind of odious debt, you'd look no further than for-profit colleges like Corinthian Colleges.
1: We well, see. I would say the most extreme to... kind of odious debt was the bilateral loans given to Saddam Hussein. But okay, you can. <laughs>
0: Or maybe the um, Because like...
1: that's, that's actually where the doctrine of odious debt comes from, is, okay. is, is loans to dictators. And then does the democratic government who takes over from the evil dictator have to pay back those loans? Interesting. It's a different segment. Different segment. A... We will come back to the doctrine <laughs> of I feel odious like a, debt. A whole, I feel like we
3: could do a whole episode titled odious debt.
1: <laughs> yeah. this would be interesting. But, but in the private sector, we yeah. have these evil for-profit colleges. Evil
0: for-profit colleges.
1: Corinthian what? College. I, we, need to, we need to have
3: one disclaimer. Oh. Slate is owned by Graham Holdings Company. Grand Holdings Company also owns Kaplan, which okay. is a does own for-profit colleges. Anyway, but not look, Corinthian. No, not Corinthian colleges. No, no, no. They're so weird. the
0: Attorney General of California filed a complaint against Corinthian um, last spring or summer, claiming that it had all sorts of fraudulent practices and uh, consumer uh, fraud, and like they were lying about how their students did in the job market. They're doing all sorts of evil things. And I know Jordan is itching to add something.
3: We should probably start by saying exactly what Corinthian Colleges was, which it wasn't just another for-profit college company. It was the biggest. Bigger than University of Phoenix? I think even bigger than University of Phoenix at one point. It was 100,000 plus students. It was, I saw one figure, I want to say they were taking in about a billion dollars in federal student loans at one point. That is almost 1%. Of all student loans in the country. In
0: 2013, they took in more federal loans than um, the entire UC California system. Yeah. So
1: this is a huge university network and they were not educating their students very well.
0: Exactly. So they got in trouble with the attorney general of California. They're basically being shut down. Although there's a caveat on that. And the reason we're talking about it this week is because 15 students have decided they've declared that they will not pay back those federal loans that they got to go to Corinthian College. And since, by the way, since they declared that, it's gotten a lot of press, A 1,000 more Corinthian students have joined that list.
1: So now we have 1,015-ish students who are saying can't pay, won't pay. What's the difference between going on debt strike and just defaulting on your loans?
3: Well, this is interesting. Um, So one thing that has kind of emerged out of this story is a very little-known clause about debt forgiveness and the Department of Education that allows the Department of Education to cancel debt in instances where a student was basically misled by their school and convinced to borrow.
0: I should also add that A lot of the students got not all of the money to go to Corinthian College from the federal government. They got some private loans. So many of the debt strikers are actually paying back those private loans and are are striking on the government loans, partly because of this rule. But another part of it, I mean, a sort of a meta reason explanation is that the Department of Education is supposed to actually sort of act as a regulator and make sure that these colleges are actually educating their students. They failed on that job. And it, everyone knows they failed. And the question is, why are these students still on the hook for this money, for the education they didn't get?
3: Well, that's when you say they failed, I mean, they have a limited set of tools. Um, the Department of Education has been, and this is sort of a rabbit hole, but I'll just talk about it very briefly, has for several years now been trying to issue a tougher set of regulations that would require for-profit colleges to essentially shape up or lose access to federal funding. Um, It's called the Gainful Employment Rule. It says things like you can't graduate students with too much debt compared to their income. They have to have a certain percentage employed, more so than are now required. There's been a massive legal battle back and forth that has just prevented these rules from ever coming into effect.
0: Right, and there's been Um, a lot of lobbyists for the for-profits pushing on that
3: side. What I should say is interesting about the Corinthian case. Is that despite the fact that the Department of Education hasn't been able to adopt these TEFRA regulations, in many ways it was responsible for effectively shutting down Corinthian, which was they knew that because of things like the uh, state attorney general's suits, it was very obvious that Corinthian was doing things that were very, very shady and that. Needed to be questioned and that maybe we're breaking the law. And so they basically requ- asked for lots of data to prove things like their graduation rates, whether or not they'd been lying to the government about graduation rates. Corinthian couldn't produce it. And so they used that as a reason to then cut them off from federal loans, federal funding. And that is what then forced Corinthian to go and sell uh, their campuses to uh, actually a Nonprofit debt collector, which is a whole other issue. So what the Department of Education did, though, is showed we do have some muscle here to try and defend these students from what was a predatory uh, organization. Now, groups like the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau are doing things like fighting for debt forgiveness for those private loans.
1: Okay, wait, hang on a sec, but you're saying that the government in yeah. the form of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau yeah. asked for debt forgiveness on private loans, Yes, but it didn't ask for debt forgiveness on public loans? Well, CFPB, as far as I know, doesn't have any jurisdiction over public
3: loans. And it's so re- like a
0: really different category yeah. of loans. And so they, they can push for and actually get a 40% haircut on the private loans. But let me let me just take a step back and talk about for-profit colleges. as like, What is their business model? Their business model, um, and this is a cynical view, but I, I can back it up. The business model is to game the federal loan industry. And there's a rule um, that no accredited educational institution can get more than 90% of their money from federal loans. So 10% has to be private loans or student money. But these for-profit colleges get almost 90%. Federal loans. So it, that's what they're doing.
3: This comes back to the, when you talk about gaming the system, Corinthian actually took it a step further than that, which was they realized that as long as they were issuing private loans, they could get, then get more federal money. For every private loan you issue, that means you're getting less of your income. It's leverage. From the, For every yeah. dollar you issue yeah. in private loans, yeah. you
1: can get another $9 of the, federal loans. The
3: problem is, ordinarily, banks won't they won't lend to students who attend certain institutions. They won't expressly tell you which institutions those are, but they'll say, yeah, there are some that are on our blacklist. Um, Corinthian, I'm guessing, was probably on their, on those blacklists. What they came up with was a system where they got students to take out private loans from a third party and told them it was a third party. They had, nothing, they had no interest in these loans, allegedly. But then under the table, Corinthian was essentially required to buy those loans the second they were issued. So Corinthian was essentially issuing its own student loans without telling anyone, and as a result, let their students borrow even more from the federal government. It was this hustle they were running the whole time.
0: There's one thing I have to add, which is I've, I've talked to a woman who worked in finance at Corinthian. She actually explained to me that they also raised the tuition to the point where federal loans wouldn't cover everyone's bill so that they, they would have to take out a, an extra private loan so that they could meet this 90% mark. This is like true gaming.
1: So we, we're all agreed that Corinthian is evil, and I feel like we've lost sight of what we're meant to be talking about here, which is not, <laughs> oh, my God, Corinthian is evil. We've known that, and it's already being shut down. I feel like we're prosecuting something which has already been prosecuted. The question is this debt strike. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to go back, Cathy, to the question which I asked at the beginning. What is the difference between a debt strike and just defaulting on your loans?
0: The only difference is that you're trying to create political power through numbers. Yeah. That's the difference.
1: And and what political power do you have by defaulting on your loans?
0: Well, the political power is we're talking about it right now. The press has been talking about it. You know, everyone's covered this. And the idea is to put pressure on the Department of Education to use that rule that Jordan was discussing to actually say, you know what, this is odious debt. You shouldn't have to pay this back, and we're going to let you off the hook for this money.
3: Yeah, and we should. The reason that this rule is now being talked about is because. among others, Senator Elizabeth Warren mentioned it in a letter to the Department of Education, said, look, you have this power. Not a lot of people know about it. But this. if any time we wanted to exercise it, it's this, because we all know Corinthians specifically right. was an exceptionally awful case. Yes, um, And I think that the reason— why the backstory of Corinthian is important here, is that the department's going to be very hesitant to exercise this rule because they're afraid of creating a precedent, creating well, yeah, moral because
0: hazard. Corinthian's not the only one, right? Yeah,
3: there have been other problems. However, Corinthian was so bad, yeah. and there's so much evidence of how awful it was that maybe they can somehow say, all right, this is one exceptional circumstance. There's a sort of a bright line here, and so maybe that will matter.
1: But you were saying that they were getting... Billions and billions of dollars in federal loans. If the U.S. government did carve out a rule saying you don't need to pay back Corinthian loans, that would cost Money. Yeah. tens of billions of dollars. Yes, it would.
3: I, I don't know the exact amount of outstanding debt. Yeah. Um, it's, there are a lot of factors that come to play there, but it I wouldn't mean, be cheap. The question is,
0: for the country as a whole, is it better for the government to eat that cost and then close down those institutions that are really predatory, or is it better for us to like hand that to these students who are, generally speaking, poor um, people that you know just can't afford to pay it back? I don't, I don't see it as uh, a problem. And, and, and
1: yeah, I think since I'm allowed to have an opinion on this show, I, I would say that it's okay for the government to spend billions of dollars forgiving student loans only if, at the same time, they are shutting down that university. Yeah. You can't retroactively forgive student loans and then say, but keep on educating people. We're going to keep on loaning people money to go to your school.
0: Yeah. And it's kind of weird. It's not clear that they're really closing down, yep. even though they've been sold to a, believe it or not, a... a, a Debt collector. Yeah, it's not clear that the debt collector is actually closing down all the campuses.
3: Yeah, I mean when I, when we're saying sh- closed down is sort of a shorthand. Basically, they forced the company into a cash crunch where they had to sell they, and they been and sold they, off. And yeah. they negotiated a sort of uh, wrap up of the whole of, of the of liability and lots of other issues. But there are still the
1: students day. going to those campuses, getting slightly worthless degrees and taking out loans to do it. Yes, it's really sad. Okay. On that depressing note, I hope that one or two of you have a uplifting number to nope, end not this at all. podcast. On, <laughs> not uh, even a, a little bit. On a, on
0: a... I'm actually a little worried that you, one of you has my number, so I'm going to go first. Okay, go first. <laughs> oh, maybe. you better not. $533 million? Nope,
1: go I for I don't it. have that one. Okay. Nope. That, that's, that's all um, yours.
0: So there was a jury that found against Apple.
1: Ah! ah yeah, I um, yes. Apple
0: was um, basically violating three patents by a company called SmartFlash. Um in its iTunes software, and you know basically it was just like well you know it knew about it the that the, the jury found that the Apple absolutely knew that it was violating these patents and just go ahead went ahead and did it, and it was it's pretty big it's a pretty big settlement five hundred thirty three million dollars, but then I compared it to how much money Apple has offshore um but Apple can't
1: use offshore money to pay this it needs to use onshore money right? We well, could
0: bring it onshore.
1: Uh, that's they could probably
0: well, they, could, they could probably issue
3: a
1: loan. <laughs> well, listen, listen.
0: That
3: would then be ta- anyway. Just, sorry.
0: just to give you a, a sense of how big a dent this is going to make if they decided to bring stuff on shore. one over three hundred, one three hundredth of the sort of extra cash they have lying around. So I don't know the extent to which this jury settlement is actually going to make them stop doing stuff. Well, they're like going to re-
3: they're going to appeal it, and oftentimes with uh, patent cases, a jury, especially uh, in. This part of Texas where a lot of these cases come through, juries often side with the plaintiff and then the appeals court often says, no, that was some BS. Um, so I, I, I don't really expect Apple to end up paying it. And,
1: and I'm going to jump in here and say this is an egregious. Yes egregious example of patent trollery at its worst. This patent was not held by anyone who actually invented anything, who by anyone who actually did anything. It was just a company which bought up some random patent and then started suing the biggest company they could find for as much money as they could imagine. It's a horrible, horrible, gruesome business, and it ought to be put an end to. And I, although I'm sure Apple can afford this, the plaintiff here who's won this money or been awarded this money is just truly truly evil. Yeah. Do I, we
0: have a like topic about patent trolling?
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah, okay. We patent, 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 patent trolling is a good time. Um it's
3: <laughs> a good, good time. It's, good. Time.
0: it's like love. the vulture funds of the Silicon Valley world.
3: I mean it is it's just like cojones. like the whole industry just like runs on cojones. Anyway, sorry. Um is it my turn? My yes, turn for a number Yes. What's your so, number? My number is 2850 which is the number of dollars that a, a 30-year-old man named Christopher Gray recently woke up and discovered had been basically deducted from his Venmo account uh, recently without his permission. He didn't know about it. This is his separate Venmo account or his bank account? Or his bank account. Sorry, that had Could been to you remind me to what him. Venmo is? So Venmo is a very popular... Uh, service, popular amongst the kids, that lets two people just send electronic payments. You can send your buddy five bucks over Venmo if you don't have cash on you. It's super smooth, super easy to use, except as Slate's Allison Griswold discovered in a recent article, uh, apparently has almost no security measures whatsoever. And poor Christopher... Did not receive an email telling him that his password had been changed, for instance. Uh, he discovered there's no two-factor authentication on Venmo. That's sort of a standard security measure. He couldn't, there wasn't really any customer service he could get a hold of for a while that he could say, hey, I think I've been hacked. He had to tweet at them at one point. Uh, it's just a mess. And so this is just a, kind of an example of you know, a startup kind of outgrowing its ability to, I guess, you know, serve its customers in a very, very dangerous or yeah. insecure industry.
1: Okay, and my number is three. since Ever since we had Melanie Hicken on last week, and, you know, she was talking about Hoboken, I've become more conscious of that landmass to the west of New York, known, <laughs> known as New Jersey. <laughs> and I don't know if you've been reading the headlines about, you know, the way that somehow... Exxon, which spent over a century polluting large chunks of New Jersey, was being sued by New Jersey for $8.9 million and seems to have settled for $250 million. There's all manner of sleazy stuff going on in New Jersey, but my number is three, <laughs> yeah, which is my favorite data point, um, which is that United Airlines had a flight once a week on Thursdays from um, from Newark Airport down to... Columbia Airport in South Carolina, only once a week. And then weirdly, there was also a once a week flight back from Columbia Airport in South Carolina to Newark Airport. And then the chairman of the Port Authority, which runs Newark Airport, David Sampson, got slowly eased out, uh, you know, when there was all of this brouhaha over the George Washington Bridge. And three is the number of days after he no longer became chairman that they stopped running that flight. And by sheer coincidence. coincidence, by sheer coincidence, David Sampson had a weekend house in South Carolina, and he would take that flight down on Thursdays and come back on Mondays. Wow. And they called it the Chairman's flight. And the minute he's no longer the chairman, he no longer gets that flight. Womp, United womp. Airlines, New York. What kind of plane
0: was it? Was it seven forty seven?
1: Just like that dude alone on his plane. And so United is, is desperately trying, you know, everyone's wondering whether they're going to, you know, straight-facedly say, oh, no, this was a genuine commercial flight and it's just a complete coincidence. It
0: that... <laughs> never got onto Expedia for some reason.
1: So, yeah, welcome to New Jersey, people. Uh, that is it for this week. Thank you all for listening to Slate Money. If you like the show, subscribe. You can find us by searching for Slate Money in the iTunes store. Do leave a review there. Leave a review on all of the other Panoply shows. We're a big, happy family now. We're a platform. I'm, I don't know what it's like being a platform. I'm, I'm, it's what we all strive for. Right? It's sexy. Okay, no one I'll, wants I'll to be believe a, that it's sexy. So we I'm want to be a platform. And, and do keep on emailing us at slate.com, your sexy billionaires. There's, there's a bunch of email back channel <laughs> going on about sexy billionaires, this is a subject which is not going to and die off any d- time soon.
0: Provide links or pictures, please. Don't just give us names. Thank you.
1: Yeah, yeah. if you can see a sexy billionaire in the <laughs> wild, we, we would especially
3: appreciate any sort of National Geographic-esque photos you can send us. The, anyway.
1: the producer for Slate Money this week was Dan Alcorn. The managing producer <laughs> is Joel Meyer. And the executive producer who you heard earlier is the one and only Andy Bowers. So check out the entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. For Kathy O'Neill and Jordan Wiseman, I'm Felix Salmon. We'll talk to you next week on Slate Money.
0: 18- Plus.